Es spricht der Führer. Als unsere Partei gerade sieben an Hofer sprach sie schon zwei Grundsätze aus. Erstens, sie wollte eine wahrhaftige Weltanschauungspartei sein. Zweitens, sie wollte der kompromisslos die einzige Macht und alleinige Macht in Deutschland. Hello, and welcome to the Third Reich History Podcast. My name, once again, is Ryan Stackhouse, and we will presently be joined by Chris Osmar to discuss our book for the week, Ian Kershaw's The End, The Defiance and Destruction of Hitler's Germany, 1944 to 1945. For those of you unfamiliar with his work, Ian Kershaw, or rather I should say Sir Ian Kershaw, is a renowned historian of the Third Reich. Kershaw initially rose to prominence after he joined Martin Broschat's famous Bavaria project in the 1970s that focused on everyday lived experience of national socialism. Kershaw's work with the Bavaria project gave rise to his breakthrough publication, The Hitler Myth, in which he argued that Hitler's charisma allowed him to continually renew support for his dictatorship while deflecting criticism that would have otherwise undermined his popularity. Germans could thereby chalk up any of the dictatorship's failings to the incompetence or misinterpretation of the leader's will by Hitler's underling, while at the same time giving credit for all of its successes to the glorious Fuhrer. Kershaw has used this so-called Hitler myth to advance the equally influential idea of working towards the Fuhrer as the best way to understand the development of national socialist policy. The Third Reich is notorious for its competing power centers, a so-called polycratic administration, that Kershaw went on to argue allowed each of the different interest groups to advance their own vision of what the Fuhrer, or Hitler, would have wanted in a given situation. By competing with each other to try and realize Hitler's vision, this led to a cumulative radicalization as each group tried to win support for its policy by promoting the most ideologically pure resolution to any given situation. The concept of working towards the Fuhrer, translated as working towards the leader, is particularly influential for understanding the ways that the Holocaust developed as local groups each competed to find a more ideologically pure and radical solution to the so-called Jewish question that eventually culminated in the so-called final solution and genocide. So when I was going through the editing today, putting together the podcast, I noticed that a few terms popped up here and there that Chris and I neglected when we were actually discussing the book to clarify for readers who might not be familiar with the time period or the subject matter. The, the first one is the Ardennes Offensive. Uh, that's probably better known to English-speaking audiences as the Battle of the Bulge, which you may know from Band of Brothers, or it is when the Germans launched an all-or-nothing counteroffensive to try and block off the port at Antwerp and force a negotiated settlement in the west by a massed armor offensive into the Ardennes Forest, where they had made the breakthrough in 1940 during the initial invasion of France. The second, we make frequent reference to 20 July 1944 
For those of you who have seen the film Valkyrie, you will be familiar with the assassination attempt against Hitler by the Army High Command. So 20 July 1944 is quite simply the date on which uh, Stauffenberg attempted to kill Hitler by placing an explosive underneath the table in the so-called Wolf's Lair, which was Hitler's eastern headquarters. The third term that comes up a few times, a couple times, the Quadumvirate. This is the four-man group that more or less ran the Nazi economy and German society during the final few months of the war as more power was taken away from traditional government and given towards a few party leaders clustered around Hitler. So that was Bormann, who was in charge of the party, Goebbels, who was the propaganda minister and increasingly in charge of sort of popular morale and the so-called total war effort, Albert Speer, who was quite famously in charge of the war economy and responsible for making sure that the war machine continued to function despite the Allied air offensive, and finally Heinrich Himmler, who was of course in charge of the SS, the Gestapo, and domestic policing more broadly. The final and the fourth term is the Volkssturm, which is literally the people's storm. This was simply the militia army, the so-called hand or what is it, stomach and foot brigades, that is old men with stomach problems or foot issues who couldn't serve in the regular army, but were scrounged together toward the end of the war to try and put up some last final desperate resistance. The Nazis sort of harbored this vision of the Napoleonic levee en masse and uh, weren't quite making accounting for the realities of modern industrial warfare. But those are the terms you need to know. And without further ado, we shall begin the discussion. We are reviewing Ian Kershaw's The End today. The Defiance and Destruction of Hitler's Germany, 1944 to 1945. How do you want to approach it? Well, I mean, I think this question is, is the most important thing uh, because he's not asking quite the same question as a lot of other people are about the end phase. He's all about trying to figure out why the war went on as long as it did, why the Germans kept fighting, why there wasn't an uprising after 20 July. So right. it's, it's so broad, um, and and he winds up firing off, you know, eight or nine different uh, explanations. And and his real argument is that there's no not one key core thing that kept the Germans going, um, but uh, he's very into the institutions. It seems like this is an institutional history more than it is a social history. It's not so much about the Germans; it's about what the Nazi power structure looked like uh, at the end of the war. Well, as I, as I read him in the opening, I think that he had, he had a few research questions, but really there were two things that he was trying to highlight with them. One, like you're saying, structures, what were the structures of power? And two, what were the mentalities of different social groups themselves that, and how did these two factors contribute to Hitler's rule or the fact that Nazism persisted until the end as you say rather than collapsing right yeah so uh, the questions that i I pulled out of his introduction were why were hitler's self-destructive orders still obeyed 
what mechanisms of rule enabled Hitler's power despite it being obvious the war was lost and the country being destroyed? How far were Germans willing to support Hitler to the end, even though they knew the war was driving the country to destruction? Was German support still willing at the end, or did the regime rely on terror? And I think, well, he answers that question, but uh, there is also the middle ground where... Uh, most Ambivalence, people, yeah. Yeah, they just head down and try to survive. The negative bond, <laughs> as he calls it. Uh... How and why did the army fight and the government function until the end? And what alternatives did German have? Germans have? And the answer to that question, he says, is none. Yeah. Well, he keeps, he keeps suggesting that there is an alternative, uh, but he never really manages to arrive at any description of what that alternative is. Just that morally people ought to have behaved differently or recognized that they had some uh, option well the the alternative he identifies is resistance from the military he suggests that that is the only thing that could have stopped it um either that or uh, well that the military was the only thing that could stop the war and the quadrumvirate were the only ones keeping it going so you know if if the elite had given up sure, it ends. Uh, or if the military had resisted, it ends. But there isn't another way to end it. There's well, another... I, I didn't think that he... I thought that he had a sort of a more... I thought that he had a very complex explanation, or, well, sort of comprehensive explanation of what the different structures in terms of Guadumvirate, the Volkssturm, the expansion of sort of bureaucratization of everyday life under the auspices of the party, um, the splitting of the power structure, the fact that the central command remained loyal to Hitler rather than backing sort of the, um, let's say, concerns of the generals about the direction that the war was heading. Yeah. But that I, I never really got a sense that even even his idea that sort of resistance by the army, he kind of picks it up and plays with it and then sets it aside by saying, had the army succeeded, then there very likely would have been sort of some sort of civil war or some rejection of, you know, betrayal by generals, a second stab in the back, the entire narrative of how the First World War had ended through internal betrayal, right? Sure. Sure. When you when you play with the, the counterfactuals, uh, the only thing that you have to go on to guess what things would have been like is what had happened in the past. And what had happened in the past was 1918, right? We saw how that affected the German attitude. Uh, but, I mean, he certainly, 20th of July could have succeeded. Uh, and certainly that would have resulted in a German surrender. Uh, it would have resulted in the war ending in July. Uh, what well. I think is... Well, I, I got the <laughs> um, but what I what I think is really interesting about uh, his approach to the military is his consideration about how, you know, just good old fashioned German nationalism, the goals of Ger good old fashioned German nationalism were enough in line with Nazism, even at the end, that 
they almost didn't need to be true believers to want to keep fighting on uh, because they were still defending the homeland from occupation. Um, they were still facing down a brutal and uh, presumably vengeful foe in the East uh, that, that they didn't have to still be really followers of Hitler in order to continue to fight the war. Yeah, I like he spends a good deal of time discussing the negative bond, but do you understand this fear of the Soviets driving support for Hitler and something that we should also discuss is how that how that plays out in the East as opposed to the West. But do you really think that we're talking about a positive force in the sense of civil servants and the military falling back onto a duty thing or are we are we more looking at the concept of this is a fight for survival the negative bond through just we know we know what we did in the east and we know what's going to happen when the soviets come west uh, well i think that both are certainly going to be factors uh, i i i don't think that they're fighting on purely for a sense of duty uh, although apparently the these this oath to hitler actually did have some weight um, with a lot of the higher ups but yeah certainly certainly fear fear of of what the, the Soviets were going to do is a huge motivation. And, and that's a, a big part of why the war goes on after Hitler dies. Uh, you know, fight, fighting on the East to try and evacuate as many people as you can to the West. So when it all, does all uh, come to an end, uh, the Soviets are going to get their hands on the, the least number of Germans possible. Okay. Well, perhaps you should explain for our listeners what, what exactly when we're talking about the East, what is the fear, what had happened in Russia that the, that the Germans were so afraid that the Soviets would do in Germany? <laughs> Murder and destruction. Uh, yeah, the, <laughs> Please expand. <laughs> the, the annihilation of the Soviet Jewish communities by the Einsatzgruppen, the, the partisan war, the clearing of the countryside of anybody capable of work and deporting them back to, to Germany for slave labor. Uh, if you look at the uh, Volkische Beobachter for this late is the, This is the Nazi Party newspaper. Right. Uh, for late 1944, early 1945, uh, the, the, uh, the Munich edition uh, ran really almost to the end of the war. Uh, and every other front page is talking about how the Soviets are going to enslave us, about how they, have, they are now, they, they've enslaved the Romanians, uh, the, they've enslaved the Hungarians, they're coming for us next. Um, well, and they had good reason to believe that the Soviets were going to do that. Uh, and then there was this, uh, this situation in, how was it, Nemersdorf? Yes. Um, yeah. Kershaw addresses Nemersdorf at, at great length. Yeah, yeah. So the Soviets take Nemersdorf, uh, and they nail people to barns and that kind of thing. Uh, and then the Germans take it back so they can see what happened. And then uh, Goebbels ran with it in, in propaganda and made it sound even worse than, than it already was, which was already pretty bad. Uh, so there, there was evidence that the German people could look at, or, well, if they believed it at that point. I'm not, I'm not sure that uh, you could fully believe anything that... 
German propaganda was telling you at that point. But there was there was a kernel of truth behind it. There was a big nasty kernel of truth behind it. So they the German people had every reason to expect that that rape and pillage were heading their way. If we break it down, what is what are Kershaw's main points? What what is what are his arguments for why do Germans support Hitler until the end? Why why does collapse? Why does support not collapse? It's a, support him to the end said they don't resist him in the end um, but he he definitely then why does the regime continue that, to that function terror, until the end he, terror did keep the german people in line he says that he says that they there may well have been an uprising uh if it were not for the terror and and not just the terror of the not just the the German security apparatus terror, also the, the terror of, of the Soviets, uh, of, of occupation from the West. But, you know, he makes it very clear that although there was there was a bump in support for the regime after the 20th of July, that that didn't stick around very long. And, and thereafter, the German people who had already been suffering under the bombs are already just trying to find some way to get through to the end of the war were not willing to risk their lives to resist. It's not that they still supported Hitler or the regime. Uh, he's saying that they were just, and I think even indifference is the wrong word. Uh, their priorities were not on trying to find a way to stop the war. The priority was on surviving the war. And part of that meant not being wrapped up in, in the terror. Right, so like the mentality, he tracks a change in the mentality though his conclusion and his introduction do a disservice to how closely he monitors the momentary rallies in support, the glimpses of hope that arise over the course of the fall until really February 1945. Because in fall 1944, you have these series of disasters and then an apparent momentary reprieve. And then it's really not until the second month of the new year in 1945, which at that point we're talking, you know, February, March, April, May, right? So like three months before the end that the regime really ultimately resorts to terror. Uh, fear of the Soviets is very important and he, he says there's sort of this escalation in terror in the fall after the assassination attempt mm -hmm. and doesn't really go into the extent of what that is other than that there are much worse, there are much harsher consequences for sort of for targeted minorities and that, but then in February, then he gets into this idea that all of a sudden that's when terror begins to affect the German population. It's in February that the people definitively break with any support, like personal support for Hitler evaporates. And the personal support for Hitler persists to a surprising degree with incompetence being blamed on generals or on the party or on all of these, everybody else, right? But some loyalty to a combination of Germany and Hitler and not letting Germany be destroyed in the face of the Soviets. If we just hold out a little longer, then this unnatural alliance between Western capitalist powers and Eastern communist power 
will fracture. And then it's in February that terror is sort of like, okay, that's not happening anymore. And we know that we're, that this thing's going down. And so now would be the time. And that's when the regime says, or that's when these elites in the Quadumvirate and uh, sort of Hitler's paladins and the central military command and Hitler himself say, nope, we're, we're in this until the end, ratchet up the terror because we're not giving up. At least that's how I read it. What what were your thoughts on that? Well, it seems to me like there there are waves of terror that yes, there after twenty July there is uh, a backlash, although it's largely directed at the military, um, and and there's big structural changes too that come out of that. Uh, but then uh, September, October of forty four, there's a wave of terror there when it looks like. It looks like the the Western Allies are coming are coming into Western Germany, but then the things settle, as does the terror, and then again in uh, early '45 in, in February there's this this third wave, so it seems that there's there's a connection between the situation, either at the front or or crisis wise or the a crisis of the assassination attempt, that pairs with instances of uh, terror. Well, it seems that was the one part of the narrative that I thought was somewhat weak in that it's very strong in the West up until the Ardennes offensive. And then there's this throwaway comment at the end of one of the chapters that more or less the situation stabilized until uh, until March or something like that, end of February, March. And then we don't really hear about the West again until we're in full collapse and we go and we talk about the east and we talk about what effect developments in the east have on opinion in different circles uh, across the rest of the country and I, I just I thought that was interesting because you have you have this long period of time in the west where we don't really know what's going on I guess it, it felt as though given how thorough one, because it's sort of my area of particular interest, right? Uh, but uh, two, because there was so much detail going on in how attitudes were developing in different areas, given particular crises, a lot of the emphasis fell on the East to the neglect of the West. And of course, Central Germany only kind of appears in relation to a few SD reports, right? So and, I don't know. And I, I think that that's because... There's, there's just not the same crisis in central Germany as there is in the east and the west. Be, because, I mean, the German people are not rising up on some kind of political opposition to Hitler and the regime. They, the things that they're getting punished for when the terror shows up are things like cutting uh, communications wires when the Allies get close or hanging out white flags. Okay, defeatism can happen anywhere, but it's it's more likely to happen when either the the Soviets or the Americans and, and the British and okay, I'll, the Canadians. I'll throw that in for you. Uh, mm. are, are, uh, you know, don't forget the miles, Poles and the right? Free French while you're at it. Yeah, okay, I got it. The the whole rest of the world. How about that? No, 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 no. Only the important ones that actually did fighting. <laughs> but I mean, at that point, you're talking about March and late April. I felt that a lot of the conclusions in the book were drawn from developments 
1945, particularly from February onward. And the fall crisis was dealt with as sort of a prelude or an escalation rather than a a period of serious development and consideration and and there you know okay if we're i i feel really stupid because you're getting into sort of like the the cliched historical critiques right like oh it's teleological it's moving towards the idea that sort of we know that the war is going to end a particular way and kershaw is constantly bringing up this idea that it must have been obvious that the war was over. It must have been obvious. At this point, everybody knew that it was over. Everybody knew that re- further resistance was useless, right? And uh, Well, he does, he does make the point that uh, with the breakdown of communications, it was more difficult uh, for people on the ground to really have a picture of what was going on. Uh, but he, does, he operates under the assumption kind of that uh, any rational person would know Germany's going to lose yep. no matter what. And, and I think I think that 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 picture you really only you don't know that until 1945 right like the fall is big and scary but then all of a sudden you manage to stabilize it and you've yeah. got all these ideas about how you can break apart this alliance why why would I necessarily assume that all is lost unless I'm a historian right uh-huh no I think I think that that's a good critique um, I think a lot of people assume that the allies were the alliance was never going to break up that it was just impossible uh, and i don't buy that yeah <laughs> i don't buy that at all uh, it's clearly the germans were in a, a difficult position they were a long shot but you know if the ardennes offensive had made it to the sea and split the western allies no maybe they'd have talked it's not it's not ridiculous that a lot of important people in Germany would believe something like that. Yeah, I guess that's the point that it comes down to, right? And provided you still believe that there's a, a viable option and you're facing you're facing consequences for everything that you did on the Eastern Front, then it would seem to be the more rational course of action that you continue to explore those options, you know, and then and once in once you reach February, I think that a lot of Kershaw's arguments really hit their stride because at that point he's really he's firing on all of his structural points, right? You know, the expanded control of the party, the Volkssturm kind of regimenting men, the party regimenting women and children and managing civil defense and ensuring that the civilian population is managed. You've got the the military is totally backed into a corner at that point you've got terror being exercised against the population at large to make sure that people aren't speaking out you've got all of the structures that were kind of put in place to address this emergency situation over the fall are now in place and so in february when it's no longer just a matter of holding out a little bit more but fighting until the end you have the structures in place even though the mentalities are no longer there to support them what, what what structures are you are you talking about here? The ones I just listed. So, like the the ones that Kershaw brings up in his conclusion are Volkssturm, which oh, okay. is militarily useless, but mm-hmm. as a a mechanism of social control, vital. The greater regimentation of everyday life under the auspices of the party, so the partification of state bureaucracy, 
and expanding the powers of that bureaucracy over everyday life, like the ability to dragoon people into work, the ability to order forced evacuations, the ability to conscript people into civil defense initiatives, um, the fact that it has civil defense initiatives to take people's property and redistribute it in, in order to maintain, you know, basically to feed people after air raids while the world is collapsing, right? He, he mentioned sort of increased surveillance. That was another point that I wanted to talk about at some point, because this idea that surveillance is aggressively expanded is raised, but never really discussed. Uh, it's just sort of asserted. And, uh, and I assume that, that you're going to suggest that surveillance was not actually expanded. And I think you're right. I mean, denunciations go down. <laughs> the number of available uh, Gestapo personnel uh, mostly goes down. You've got some that, that flee from the, from the West. So how is surveillance going to go up? Right. If surveillance is going up, I think it's happening through party organizations and it's happening through political leaders mm-hmm. and it's happening through this, this in the increased penetration. Right? What? This is in your dissertation, right? Uh, handing this, that task off to the party. Yes. So I have that record that shows that the responsibility for critical opinion is officially delegated to the party and political leaders specifically. We don't really know what the structures of surveillance are at that point. I, I don't actually contest that everyday surveillance is necessarily... I, I believe that it does expand. I think that the idea that it is spying... Surve- I, I, I take issue with the word surveillance, I suppose. <laughs> right? Like, I think the party is more actively involved in people's lives and therefore has more opportunities to engage in social control and has more authority to engage in social control. So maybe presence rather than surveillance? Yeah, right. I, I, however, surveillance is expanded. It's just primarily expanded against foreign workers. So I'm not sure. Sh- and I, and I, I felt that foreign workers and, were strangely you know the, absent, in this, absent in this book. But uh, Yeah, they are. <laughs> you know that I combed <laughs> the book for that. <laughs> yeah. Because, well, I mean, because he wants to know why did did the Germans not resist. Um, so, I mean, do you really need to know about foreign workers for that? Absolutely you do. <laughs> Jesus. I mean, like, I'm being sorry. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like, look, you're looking at, like, millions. Of, you're looking at, what is it, like, 6 million, 10 million? Uh, eight, eight. Okay. If you, if you count uh, prisoners of war. Okay. Which I think you should, because they're working <laughs> in Germany. Uh, for German firms on German bonds. Well, you know, f- file under negative bonds, right? Like, fear of a, a 8 million strong uprising is a hell of a reason to continue supporting. Of people that have been treated as slave labor, right? Keep in mind. No. Is a hell of a reason to keep supporting the regime. Yeah, and, uh, you know, oftentimes when the Gestapo is talking about mechanisms to control the, the foreign population, like increasing raids or breaking up meetings and that kind of thing. Uh, when they say one of the purposes that they talk about is showing the German people that we're still in charge. Uh, so the, in this case, I mean, you know, I think you can call that terror. It's the same thing. It's just not being applied to Germans. But it could have a calming effect on the German people to see that uh, these crazy communists, these Easterners, 
that surely want revenge against them are being kept in their place, kept in line. Hmm. I, I think one of the key questions for our article should be terror, what, when, and who. Because mm-hmm. I, I think that's sort of lost in this narrative, <laughs> right? Or it's lost in the conclusions, I suppose. Bits and pieces of it are addressed in the narrative, but in the final conclusion, I felt that it was not as... The conclusions were not as refined as the analysis was in many portions. Am I being overly critical? So, oh, you're being healthily critical. What's missing? Like, what, what is it that we don't understand about the application of terror after July of 44? Is, is it the targets? Are we understanding the targets? Are we not understanding the mechanism by which it's uh, applied? Are we not understanding the motivation behind it? What do you think? Um, what, what are the, the unanswered questions here? The unanswered questions? Hmm. Well, mentalities were answered pretty well. The structures in terms of what prevented uprising were pr- uh, covered pretty well. Yeah. But foreign workers are missing. Mm-hmm. So the nature of the control on foreign workers which I, we, will address to, we will address to a great extent, I suppose, in Lofty, that's, that's not in this book. The way, the role, the exact role of the party, yes. like, the, the party is said <laughs> that this is, this is, we are now, you are now, now there is this coercive presence, but with, okay, that's great, I'd love to hear more, right? But that's strangely missing. Yeah, and I think that that might be a product of his attempt to break down the the power structure into the four pieces, and that he puts kind of sees Borman as as taking a role in administration down to the almost down to the local level, or at least the, the party. But he still sees terror as being being hooked to Himmler, uh, and and it seems like the party was involved uh, in the terror, or at least it, certainly in, in uh, controlling the German people and putting them in a, in a spot where they could wind up getting getting sucked into you know, a, a police prison or something like that. So it could just be his 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 attempt to find a simple structure or, or something that, that he can build a narrative around uh, has led him to ignore the role of the party in the terror. We have we don't really have an understanding of the working mechanisms of the Gestapo either. Mm-hmm. The the structures that Kershaw discusses are the courts martial, the Stangerichte, the flying courts martial, which are implemented like basically two weeks after, two and a half weeks, about seventeen days after the initial courts martial, and their mandate is what is it? It's they can pass a death sentence, acquit, transfer to a regular court. They're composed of a, a judge, a political leader of the party, and I, an officer of either the military, the Waffen-SS, or the police. And, and the party role is, is very clear right there. Well, it has, the, death, the sentences have to be okayed by the Gauleiter, the regional party boss, as the Reich Defense Commissioner, who then decides time and place of execution. And then... The party is also given those orders that they're allowed to hang 
the inhabitants of any household that puts out white sheets. I think that there tends to be poor periodization. The other critique that I have is that Kershaw gives the sense that terror is random. It's mm -hmm. arbitrary in the sense that it begins to function le with less and less oversight, outside oversight. And the sense that you get from Kershaw is just that kind of, there's a, there's a disintegration of the state. And I don't think that there's a disintegration of the state. I think that there is a devolution or a delegation or a region, a, a, a decentralization. I think decentralization is probably the word to come back to there. But it's not random. It's not whimsical. It, it, they're, it's systematic what they're doing. And it's systematic because that's how they're trying to maintain legitimacy and control over state violence. Well, the, there is something to there being an element of randomness because uh, these punishments are, are supposed to be a deterrent. And everybody who engage, most people that engage in any behavior that could get you hung up from a tree with a sign around your neck don't ever get punished for it. Uh, but a few do. And that's, that's by design, I think. I don't think that the party or the Gestapo wanted to go around killing a whole bunch of Germans. But when they do, it's supposed to have an effect. It's supposed to have some punch. Uh, and and because, for for example, the, the flying course marshal can't pass any sentence besides death, they're, they're put in a spot where everyone who is sucked up into it needs to, to serve a purpose in, in their, their death. That this, this deterrent effect has to be there. Uh, but because of that, I mean, it, it is kind of random. Are you going to be the one that, that gets hung up in order to show everybody else how they need to behave? Uh, especially because, I mean, there's, there's tens of thousands of deserters. Everybody's talking, you know, defeatist talk, uh, at least behind closed doors. But that's still public space, remember? <laughs> yeah, by the legal definition of the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, everybody's doing everybody's doing something that could get you hung up. Yeah, but Chris, uh, my point is who and when, right? Because for, by Kershaw's reading, you have the sense that terror is just sort of omnipresent from July onward. And when you start with what you're talking about, and I think the important point to raise, the fly, these flying courts are in March. That's two months, two months at the end. Right. That's not that. And that's very late. And moreover, the directives that are given are to the party in terms of hanging people are specifically people that are surrendering, that are encouraging surrender. Mm -hmm. So there is randomness in whether or not people will act on those directives in the last minute. Right. What, like what connections they have to that community. But there there is not there's not randomness in the sense of you just you have these wild-eyed maniacs roaming the countryside selecting people at random and just shooting them yeah. which which is the sense that you get from the narrative right like this is a very controlled and deliberate form of violence which as you say is intended to serve a purpose and is intended to serve a purpose against particular types of behavior that are well defined and, you know, so and, and I don't think that you get that sense. Like, I mean, the examples that we're looking at 
like Kershaw's example that he opens the book with, is someone who cuts telephone lines. That is an act of sabotage. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right? Like, it's awful. But he, and like, I mean, yes, we don't like the Nazis and it's good that they lost. But that's an act of sabotage in, a, in an active front at, while you're defending against the Germans. And Kershaw's argument apparently seems to be that because the Nazis were doomed, that uh, people shouldn't have acted on directives from above. But what I think is interesting that he loses in his analysis is that because the, the mechanisms of decentralizing a legitimate decision-making process, like because there was a decentralized decision-making process that legitimized these decisions, that's why they were made in these outrageous circumstances. When it would make more sense to just say like, yeah, it is time to pack it in, let's fall off. Right. And so I, I, I think that's why I don't like this portrayal of randomness, because it's not random. It's, it's deliberate. Mm -hmm. Or that's my defense. What do you think of that? <laughs> well, I mean, I think you, you make a good point. I mean, I, but I don't I don't necessarily think that that Kershaw is presenting it as, as just some kind of wild marauding terror that's just sweeping up anybody that it, it happens to run into because he, he lays out the, the reasons for any execution. But, but you know, that, that's, I, don't, I don't think that's even that important. Well, the, just the question of, is he, is he presenting the terror as random or not? Um, I, what I like is what, what you just brought up about, uh, about uh, legitimacy of the actions of a decentralized decision-making system. So when communications break down, and people on the ground are empowered to execute without, you know, applying to Berlin. Does that then change that what their responsibility is because they can see what's happening because they're at the front uh, and they can see that the situation is hopeless, whereas in Berlin they may still have some blinders on? Should we expect something different from a decentralized decision-making system than we do from a central government? or central agency? The difference is the decision-making process is decentralized. There's no argument about what the policy is. The policy is central. The execution is decentralized. Okay, okay yeah, that's a good point. But so well, what, what does make uh, murdering someone for cutting your phone wires random? Well, that's, I guess, what my point is, that I don't think yeah. that it's that random, right? Uh, the, the other favorite story is the one about uh, you know, the guy in the crowd, the oh-ho story. Yeah. They give the speech uh -huh. about, oh, we're going to hold the allies back and we'll stop them cold at this bridge. And he's, this party leader is, I think, it's a party leader, giving it to a, a group of civilians and some guy at the back says, oh-ho. And then flying court shows up, party leader tells the court about this guy's hung in his front yard, right? It's horrific, but that's also an ex that's explicitly undermining a political leader in public with a defeatist statement. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, if if you think about this from the perspective of the directives of what these people were empowered to do, most of the stories that you hear very closely follow that. And so, the the system that is set up that is decentralized is very intentionally intended to continue to find those behaviors and make those decisions. The consequences for those decisions increase. That's also a matter of central policy. 
but the the mechanisms are there to ensure that those things happen to those types of behaviors and it doesn't appear to be as random as uh as it as as is suggested it appears to be pretty pretty systematic until until you reach the point where you're talking about the final evacuation right like when people are hopping on the train or not hopping on the train and uh, you have the actual chaos of the moment of the arrival of the front. That I think is something that you is you get into a different situation, right? That's where people are resolving personal grudges and things like that. But up till that point, you're you're having, you know, Peter Nolas, the head of the Essen Gestapo, is every day getting in a vehicle and driving to, I think it's five or six different locations to sit on a review board for just these types of decisions with local party leaders at and he's operating as a, a decentralized gestapo commando in the the foothills to the east of dusseldorf and rattingen because that's where they're not going to get bombed and that's where the front line's been pushed back to but we have to maintain this mechanism that's going to hold the the front together and hold civilian morale together so or at least prevent resistance at that point. Yeah, but but what you're saying is that it's it's the same logic that's had been operating beforehand, uh, just through some slightly different methods. Same logic in what sense? Uh, as far as uh, goals and the the way in which they're interacting with the German people. Mm, no, I think that's fundamentally different because. We're, get, we're getting into a much bigger conversation there, but when, when certain things happen with the concentration camp system and legal representation and arbitrary execution and which groups are subjects, which groups fall under extraordinary police mm -hmm. justice and which behaviors and measures are counted under police justice and which ones are responsibility of normal justice. However, and that definitely changes post-July, right? Like executive agencies like the Gestapo, the police, are given way more authority to execute people. However, there is an attempt to maintain a regionalized control over that decision-making process. It's not individual, right? And but you're saying that was after July? That's after July. The, the regional decision-makers are, are deciding on executions? I thought that they still had to apply to RSAJ uh, right up until... Well, here's my theory. Because there, there are directives that come out. There's actually a direct... There's Things are more radical in the fall crisis before they're less radical as the fall crisis goes on. In response to the route out of the Falaise Gap and the, the botched evacuation of Aachen and just what appears to be the West collapse of the Western Front. Himmler issues directives. All of a sudden, you're allowed to make all of these decisions independently on your own, like personal, you are personally responsible for the outcome, but you're allowed to make those decisions if communication is cut. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, the uh, what, plunderers, uh, marauders. Right, most Thanks. of it applies, there, but there's and different it's... rules for foreign workers and Germans. Yeah, yeah, but November November one is when the RSAJ no longer needs to be contacted before you murder Austin Right, but what happens is 
that the new directives that come out, I think it's about 20 days later, I think it's also in November, uh, they then state that you are allowed to make these decisions regionally, but you have to have agreement between a local Gestapo leader, the higher SS police leader, and the like the commandant or inspector of security police for the area. Most commandants of security police have some type of legal training at that point, or all the ones in the Rhineland do. But there's, there's this attempt to maintain a regional legitimacy. And so that's, that's a decentralization of the decision-making process. So initially, what I think you're seeing happen is that you're having structures to legitimize decisions. One, you're having more violent decisions being made more often. Mm-hmm. And initially, that is a response to crisis. And they say, okay, if you can't get permission from us, then you have the power to do it. And then once the crisis stops, and as they realize that, oh, this is going to be the new normal, this is not just something where we're going to, that this isn't going to change in the short term, this is going to be how we operate for the foreseeable future. That, and by that, I mean, in terms of interrupted communications, we need to decentralize this. And so they establish new this, they establish this new structure where you have this little triumvirate of people that make life and death decisions and that you have to get agreement between them on those decisions if you can't get a hold of the RSHA. And that actually the RSHA isn't going to make these decisions anymore. You at the regional level are going to be making these decisions. So you're, what you see is that new institutions develop to maintain the legitimacy of life and death decisions by the state. But like, so they decentralize legit, a legitimate decision-making process okay. because that's the new normal, uh-huh. right? So there's an initial radical but, reaction. So, you, so you're saying that, that, that this is not, yeah, right. That this is not radicalization that, uh, I guess it's normalization. Yeah. Yep. Hmm. That's interesting. And then in February, I mean, you start to get into more and more violence and more and more uh, like greater violence, but it's still primarily directed against people who are making some type of, they're either actively engaged in sabotage or anecdotally at this point, it appears to be people who are actively engaged in sabotage or publicly challenging the regime with defeatism. Yeah, and, and as I understand it, that's how it is right up to the end. I mean, sure, some people may have fabricated something to, to you know, bump off a rival or something like that. Uh, but there still needs to be some justification for an execution. There needs to be a reason why. Well, the other, the other really interesting thing is that during the fall crisis, and again, this falls under the category of more radicalization before uh, a, a return to more nor- a more normal mode of behavior, Higher SS police leader Gutenberger tries to order the police to execute anybody who refuses the forced evacuations. And the police won't do this, it appears. And it's about two weeks later that he, you can see him backtrack. And there's some discussion about sort of extreme force, essentially like you can beat somebody who refuses to comply with an evacuation and arrest them. But 
the the discussion about shooting people who refuse evacuations kind of quietly drops off. So I, I think that there's documents for this. Yeah, I do. Can I have them? <laughs> Can we publish about them together? Well, I mean, the like uh, the chapter I'm working on right now is is September and October of '44, uh, and I did not seen anything about that about about shooting Germans that refuse to evacuate. So I would be very interested to see that. Yeah, well, but the thing is, it fails, right? <laughs> the people that they execute are looters and deserters. They don't execute anybody who the the so-called stragglers. Right. Uh, although they they forcibly evacuate them. Oh yeah, they or, forcibly oh, oh, evacuate yeah. them, right? But they're under orders to shoot them, according to Gutenberger, for most of October. Really? Yeah. And they talking, just don't do it. We're talking about hundred thousand people. Two hundred and fifty something, I think. Where is it? So you're telling me that that Gutenberger wanted the with, I guess it'd be the order police. They were the ones that were conducting the executions to murder tens or hundreds of thousands of Germans. Thousands of Germans who were refusing evacuations, yes. And then if you look at the Cologne documents, what's interesting is that you see that the people who get passed on to the security services are only the ones who are engaged in outright rebellious sentiment. Like people who say, if the party leader tries to take me out of my house, I'll cut his throat. Right, like that will still get you the attention of the Gestapo, <laughs> but there's there's way like this is why when I read Khrushchev's description of the terror, I don't feel that he's accurately reflecting it from the perspective of the police, and that's why I think that understanding the mechanisms that the party are involved in are so important. Maybe the party is engaged in way more of this than we realize, right? Yeah. Uh, but to my mind, what I, especially when I'm looking at how much effort is going into involving the party in decentralized structure, decision-making structures, like the court-martial and the flying courts-martial, it's, it's not... I think that our image is really coming from, like, the last eight weeks tops. Uh-huh. Right? Like, we're not... And, and, like, February, there's a fundamental change. But that's still like it's the last eight weeks and it's only at the very front on a community by community basis that you start to see this terror mm -hmm. affect Germans. So, yeah, well, but I, th it does also affect Germans in September and October of 44 in, in the vicinity of the front. Uh, there, I think there's a very clear connection between acts of terror in, or applying terror to the German people and the immediate local situation, what's happening within 20 miles of that spot. Okay, define terror. Uh, let's say uh, execution uh, for a behavior that you would never even consider executing someone for in peacetime, or, or even earlier in the war. Uh, the, the OHO would be an extreme example of this. Uh, but, or uh, shooting somebody for you know, stealing out of a a seller uh, of their neighbor who's not even there anymore, that kind of thing. Because hmm. it's it seems like it's tied with, or at least the, the flashpoints are the crisis moments near the front. Right. 
so thinking about the party, um, you're right that we don't really quite know how involved they are in a lot of this. Uh, But one thing that you will know and that that Kershaw brings up and we've seen in other places is how often uh, the party leadership are the first ones to get out of town when things go south. Uh, And, and, you know, they're supposed to be the ones that are in charge of evacuations, but they they take off oftentimes uh, when the evacuations, or shortly before the evacuations would uh, begin. You see this in uh, in the east in, in Barthagau when Greiser uh, ups and leaves uh, shortly before the evacuations are supposed to start. You see it in, in Aachen, the, the whole party leadership who's supposed to be running the, the evacuations take off right before the evacuations are to begin. And, and I think they send a couple buses to help move the people, but, but the party leadership is gone. So I wonder how much the police are stepping in to take on roles that are supposed to be taken by party members in those kind of situations where where you have party leadership abdicating responsibility. Right. Uh, I I don't know because I think from what I have read, the police are mostly, political police at least, and the auxiliaries that they are assigned are working in decentralized commandos and operating they're operating in decentralized commandos and they're responsible for the uh i i don't know what you would call it but the the line that separates the green zone and Mm -hmm. the evacuated red zones yeah Yeah. so they're not the party is really kind of doing it on its own from what i understand the evacuations no well no the police are going into the red zone and evacuating communities And responsible for that, yes. Yeah, and uh, and it would be the responsibility of the the Gauleiter to give the the code word that would initiate evacuation uh, for their area, and and that was that was decided. Actually, it was the nineteenth of July that 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 responsibility was laid out in a Hitler order, really? uh, which is interesting because it, it's it's the day before twentieth July, obviously. Uh, right. So they were thinking about this before before the 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 first crisis that you could point at to say that maybe this is when the, the end phase starts. Hmm. So yeah. the party's supposed to have responsibility, but it is, it is the police that are actually doing the job. Yeah, I, I had forgotten about who issued the orders and who actually did the, the actual evacuations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Some of this was done under heavy fire, too. Like, there were a few areas where, what are they? Like these police battle groups. The yeah, are actually being used to plug a hole and evacuate a particular area under fire. I have a couple examples of that. Yeah, I, I, the, the chapter I'm working on right now has eight or ten pages on that. Right. <laughs> I've been into that lately. But I don't know. Like I, I just I suppose this comes back to sort of the idea of what is implicit in the term terror and the definition of terror. My My understanding is that the, the terror is, to an extent, I've, I've always associated with a certain element of randomness, right? Yes, it can, that it can happen to anyone, and that it is unrestrained by rules, in addition to targeting behaviors that would normally not be, you know, considered worthy of punishment. So, 
if we're actually looking at a situation where we're saying, you know, by terror we mean punishing, just punishing people for things that we normally wouldn't punish them for, or punishing them much more harshly or what we would consider disproportionately, then, like, I, I just don't like it because it's such a subjective term. Sure. Right? But, you know, uh, certainly that, that kind of terror existed in the Soviet Union. Uh, and I guess even, like, the French Revolutionary Terror seems like it had that kind of character. But is, does anyone really say that, that that Nazi terror as applied to Germans functioned that way? Well, I think people use, like, the term the terror is supposed to, it comes from the French Revolution and is applied in the Soviet sense in those terms until recent historiography, the last 10 years. So uh, I think that... Is that, when, and, is that and the problem then? I think that I think that the the term terror is to to use a wonderfully sideways academic term problematic uh, <laughs> because because it it carries baggage that implies randomness and that it doesn't it, it obscures more with implicit value judgments than it reveals about what is actually happening in terms of social control. That's very interesting. Uh, can you think of a, a, a better word or phrase for what's happening? Social control. Okay. Like, very, like, how the nature of social control. Like, coercion, um, you know, coercive measures. Like, coercion is nice and broad and neutral. Social mm -hmm. control is nice and broad and neutral. Like, these are big tent terms that cover your methods to achieve your desired outcome. Right. And that lets you that lets you have a discussion that when you say terror, all of a sudden, you, like it, it is by definition an emotive term. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like. Uh, and, and so I. So per, it's not I suppose I should temper my critiques in that much of what I am saying is not what anything that Kershaw is necessarily saying but what is left implied by the term terror for the areas that he is not specifically addressing. Sure. And, and I think that's important. Um, this is something that I, I guess I'd never thought of before. What kind of baggage terminology like that can bring with it. Um, and, and, you know, when you read in, in the sources talking about terror attacks, you know they're talking about the bombing. Uh, mm -hmm. And you just kind of at least I, I'm sure that, that anyone reading the same kind of document would just dismiss that sentiment that this is a terror attack uh, and mentally pop in the word air raid in that spot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we're more or less doing the same thing when we talk about Nazi terror. Right? Yeah. We're, we're just throwing a loaded term at it and it's unexamined. And maybe it should be. Because I like that's where I think that we get into the more interesting questions about what, who, and when. Mm -hmm. Because when you say terror, you, you're just like, you've got this general term that's like, well, random death for things that don't deserve death, that are poor, through a poorly defined process. Like, it's the black box of terror, right? Uh -huh. And so we should be a little bit more specific about what we mean, right? And so Kershaw did a really good job at that in certain points of his chapter, but I you know, this, this idea, the, like he calls them quite specifically wild reprisals, right? Against mm -hmm. average Germans. 
that that's not right yeah. right like <laughs> so um and and i think i think that terror stuff is really the only place where i'm really take issue with the book i think that he's got really good structural explanations overall and his structural mm -hmm. explanation in quote unquote terror is also accurate i just don't think that he he's he doesn't really go into how it's actually working right so he he mischaracterizes the the mechanism but not the effect yes yes all right all right well we've been uh, we've been going here for a little over an hour. I think that uh, that might be a, a good place for us to break this off and talk about what we're going to do next time. Uh, I would like to talk a little bit about the party and what we don't know about that, I guess. So okay. I feel like we've talked. I, I think that the terror stuff is quite important for our article, but I think that if we're looking at structures that are involved in social control, <laughs> then the party has got to be part of that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, what do we need to know about the party? I guess the, the, the question that you asked before that was really good was what's not there. And I guess that's what I, I would put to you, but in relation to the party. Okay. So, so what are we, we missing with the party? I think that the lower level interactions, like uh, the, the, the role of the Gaulite are, are pretty clear. Um, and a lot of their actions are well documented, but how do how does something like an evacuation order get disseminated to the Chrysleiter and and on down to to the people on the ground that are supposed to implement it? Um, and how do they understand it? How do they they understand their role? Because it seems like it has changed significantly. I think a way. To approach that question is this idea of returning to the campsite that they had that the party had a model that they could look to or I guess it was more of a myth than a model uh, but they they understood what it meant to take initiative to uh, to be active um, to improvise and to be aggressive uh, but still I mean I I don't think that we know quite how the that connection between the bottom and the middle work. So uh, are there any studies of like actual block and cell and local level party not, political leaders or associates? None that I know of. I, I can't think of any, any underneath the, the Gauleiter level. Because we're basically saying that like, or Kershaw says that they're responsible, right? One, the partification of the, of the civil service and two, the party's responsibility for civil defense is what is both part of expanded surveillance and coercion and two responsible for making sure that the needs of the population are met and so it's it's serving this like dual purpose but what does that even look like what is what, what does that mean in terms of structures how does that happen well i think that there are there's party institutions that are taking on a lot of these um the creation of of the folks term uh, which is under the direction of both the, the Wehrmacht and the party. That is a, an institution, an organization that's going to fulfill some kind of defense role. Uh, you got the, uh, the NSV, which is uh, responsible for uh, taking care of people's welfare. And that's a party organization that's, that's well established. That uh, It's got a long background. And, and it had been involved in, in helping people from the bombing for years. So 
that that piece of the puzzle I think is there. The the role of the party in surveillance is not clear uh, at all. And this is something that you you bring up in your your dissertation that there's this handing off of the uh, almost of policing Germans <laughs> to the party, mm-hmm. yeah. And that's the first time I'd heard that anywhere. What do you so think? obviously there's, I like it. Yeah. Um, huh. Although you know, uh, the the party was also. I mean, you, you say that the, the the Gestapo takes on on foreign workers and hands Germans off to to the party. Uh, the party also is involved in policing foreign workers. Right. Uh, it, the Gestapo has directives like when they're going to do a raid, that they're to draw on the party for whatever additional force that they have. Uh, so there's a, a definitely a cooperative relationship that's going on in, in policing uh, between the party and, and the actual police. And yeah, it's there. But what do we know about it? What do we know about that? Just all we know is that it the party happened. has a role now. Yeah. Like, how did they do that? It, it, seems, it seems like the same thing like the block leader, right? Like, there, it's sort of, oh, well, the block leader was part of this, you know, penetrative, surveillance, social, you know, social policy, civil defense thing, right? That was the fabric of the party at the, at the individual and interpersonal level that was like the sensory organs of the state, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like the whole the whole modern idea of the military in the U.S., right? Like every soldier is a sensor, right? Like every block lighter is a sensor. But we don't really know about like what, you know, how many denunciations come in from them. Who Do they report to their district office or do they like what does the district office do? Who makes decisions? What role do they actually play in social control? And how does that change in the end phase when apparently all these other things are happening? Because the Gestapo is decentralizing and spreading its personnel in like three to two man groups all across the Rhineland. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's different. Like, <laughs> so I don't yeah. know. Yeah. The, at what level are decisions being made in the party when say they get a complaint that, uh, Yonatan is listening to this English radio up in his attic. Right, and how does that change during the evacuations in the end phase? Mm-hmm. Right, like fundamentally different. So, I, I guess I really want to know more about that, and like I keep trying to shake the trees on this, but I, I haven't seen any really good articles about it other than Schmeek and Ackerman's thing on the block leader, and I don't really know anything about what the NSV is doing. I don't know if it's this is an issue of documentation or people just haven't done the kind of nuts and bolts local level work with it or what that may well be uh, that it's let's just say it's not a, uh, a terribly romantic topic to take up uh, or at least not not from not cold the, yeah yeah <laughs> the, your, your first encounter with uh, you know what, what, what were let's the, study the block doing <laughs> yeah even better <laughs> Nazi welfare in January 1945. That's great. <laughs> no, really, uh, more in- subtitle, more interesting than you think. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. I think there, there's definitely room. The question is whether the sources exist. But there's yeah. there's more to well, be done it, on it, that for sure. That is necessarily a regional study. or regional, yeah. uh, I mean, a local study. The documents exist for some locality somewhere. It can be done. Right. 
And that's the that, other well, thing, like, that's assuming that anyone was writing anything down, which it's possible that nobody wrote anything down. There's a lot of daily reports, man. A lot of daily reports because that's how they're that's how they're demonstrating that they're performing their duties. That's how they're demonstrating like that they're the whole thing that Kershaw the point that Kershaw made about the increasing bureaucratization of everything, right? That the way that they compensate for the challenges of the air war and logistics is by multiplying the top-down bureaucratic approach that everything has to be double-checked and ordained and directed and organized and whatever, right? That is definitely something that you see happening in the police as they're decentralizing. Uh, every time that they get a chance, they send back a report that is listing numbers about how many people they've arrested for what and where they're being sent, right? There's like daily update reports for the Cologne Gestapo from that period. Because the traditional sort of like you've got your central registry stuff is no longer there. So there's kind of the multiplication of paperwork, I guess. And, and I guess it would be, it'd be safe to assume that the party's doing the same thing. Um, they probably are. I, I haven't seen anything like that, though. Well, but they have to be, right? Think about it. Think about what they're, they're involved in. They're like, you're talking about situations where 600,000 warm meals a day in Dresden, yeah. right? Like civil defense is a massive logistical organizing problem, right? You, you can't do that without communicating, I would assume. Sure. Yeah, you can't. I mean, you can get, you're right. You can't organize that. Just Orally. Verbal yeah. orders, uh, particularly not when you're usually going to be active in places where all of the phone lines and power lines have been cut, <laughs> along right. with the, all the other utilities. Yeah. Right, and and you've got a refugee crisis going on at the same time, right? Which I thought was interesting, just as a side point, was probably the best explanation that I had heard for why opinion of the party and Hitler kind of finally collapses in February. Like, that's the final proof that they can't handle it anymore, right? The, the appearance of the river of refugees coming out of the east. Well, but more than just the, more than just the image, which is powerful on its own, the mismanagement and... The, the mismanagement of it. One, that the party had screwed up and given a poor accounting of itself by pulling out early. But two, that the state was incapable of mastering the refugee situation. Yeah. Right. And you know, that, that caused unrest, you know, going going back to when a lot of the cities were evacuated and, and people were sent out into the countryside to, to live with other German families. So, so there, there's a, a good solid background for that pissing off Germans. And on that note, we will call it quits for this installment of Third Reich History Podcast. Like, thank you very much for joining us. We hope to see you next time when we'll be discussing Rusenik's Society and Catastrophe. It's an excellent book that looks at the city of Cologne during the fall crisis that we've been discussing as part of the end phase this week, raises the question of whether or not organized resistance to Hitler can be said to have existed during this period. Thank you again for joining us. We hope to see you next time.